is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Felton. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Concerned growing about long COVID in kids, doctors starting to see more children and teens suffering from it. So how worried should parents be? And we'll hear from one of the top vaccine experts in the country on how they're holding up now with Delta. House party turns into a spreader event. Got an epidemiologist sick. We'll hear from him. Demand is growing for fake vaccination cards. We'll tell you where that demand could be the greatest. We start with kids and long COVID. Dr. Laura Malone, physician scientist at the Pediatric Post-COVID Rehabilitation Clinic at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. So, doctor, explain what's going on here with children and the long-haul symptoms. Yes, we are seeing that uh, for a subset of children that have COVID infections, that they have long-term sequela from it that can last months, even up to a year or more. Do we know how big that subset is? And I guess that's probably the trouble with some of the adult cases as well. It happens in a certain percentage, but we still don't know enough about all of this, do we? Yes, research is ongoing to try and understand uh, what actual percentage of children and adults suffer from long-term problems after COVID infections. There have been some studies, though. uh, The largest sample sizes have been out of places in Europe like the UK, and they're estimating maybe around 5 or 10% of children might have persistent symptoms after their acute COVID infection. Well, 5 to 10% or 15% would be numerically a lot of kids. Yes, I think that uh, that is the concern is that this could affect a fair number of children, but it doesn't affect everyone. And so um, it's important to keep that into perspective that uh, most children will recover and won't have any long term sequela from it. But but let me ask you uh, what I'm sure some parents might be wondering as well, because you're seeing some of these uh, long term symptoms develop, as I understand it, sometimes weeks after the actual acute infection is, is over. Right. Uh, yes. But do we really know at this stage, because we're still kind of early in in the whole pandemic thing, whether or not we may not start seeing in these children uh, an impact of a covid infection perhaps months or even years down the road? So what we're seeing in most of the patients thus far is that it tends to be um, a couple weeks up to maybe one or two months afterwards, that if they're going to develop new symptoms, that they develop it in that time frame. We we don't know yet, um, as you said, because we're still relatively early, but we don't have any reason to believe right now that they might have effects years down the road if they aren't experiencing them in the in the relative short term. Do we separate into groups like, wow, I'm having some lousy days. I, I got a headache. It kind of won't go away. It comes and goes versus I feel like I can't get out of bed. And if I can't do that, I can't go to school and then I fall behind. And then we have a world of problems for a kid who's 15. Yes, um, I think that it's really important that if children or adolescents are, are having difficulty, as you discussed, with symptoms of feeling fatigued or if they are having debilitating headaches, um, if they are not able to function in school the way that they thought that they could previously, to reach out to their primary care doctors, to reach out to COVID clinics, because there, there's some assistance that we can give to help them get through this as their body continues to recover. Are the long-term COVID symptoms in children uh, different than the long-term COVID symptoms in adults? And if they are, uh, are the treatment options different? 
A lot of the symptoms are relatively similar to what is being reported in the adult literature. Um, the, manif the way that children experience them, though, might be different. Um, and so they, younger children may not be able to completely articulate that they're having difficulty concentrating or thinking, um, but you might see that their grades are dropping. And so I think having uh, vigilance to look out for any changes that might be happening um, with your child or in school, and then getting appropriate care to address those concerns. Could at least some of this, and we can do kids and adults here, um, is it hard to disentangle these kind of symptoms from I don't know, a really rough couple of years. Some of it sounds a lot like clinical depression, not all of it, but maybe there are some cases that might need to be separated from others here. Yes, I think that it's hard to disentangle um, definite mood concerns that we are seeing after COVID and long COVID patients uh, from just pandemic effects of everyone in society right now. But it is um, important to remember that even outside of purely mental health uh, concerns that uh, children being sick for prolonged periods of time have an effect on their psychological functioning as well. So it's all very interrelated. You can't address just one. And that's why at the Kennedy Krieger Institute, we work towards a multidisciplinary team approach to try and tackle all aspects of this problem. Dr. Laura Malone, physician scientist, pediatric post-COVID rehabilitation clinic at the uh, Kennedy Krieger Institute. Top vaccine expert in the U.S. says the vaccines are still holding up well against Delta. Dr. Paul Offitch, member of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He talked to KYW's Jim Melwertz about what we should be aware of right now with the vaccines. Well, I think we did the hard part. I mean, the hard part was within, frankly, 11 months of isolating the virus, we constructed a vaccine using a two novel technologies that have been found in pre-approval studies to be remarkably safe and effective and in post um approval studies in the real world also are remarkably safe and effective. I mean, you have 99% of people who are killed by this virus are unvaccinated. 97% of are hospitalized are unvaccinated. So the vaccines do what they're supposed to do. They're free. They're readily available. Um, it's all you could have asked the government to do. It wasn't cheap. I mean, Operation Warp Speed cost $24 billion. That's why they were able to do that so quickly. They basically took the risk out of it for pharmaceutical companies. Um, but now you get to the hard part. I mean, you've, you've solved the access issue. I think they've done a good job of educating. They've tried to provide incentives. They're doing their best to try and decrease misinformation. And yet still a solid 30 plus percent of the American public is saying we don't want to get vaccinated. So what do you do then? And I think that the, the conversation over the next four to six months is going to be about mandates, because I think at this point we've hit a wall and we're just going to have to compel people to vaccinate. And I, I don't mean to jump ahead here, but but with what you said, we're you know especially focusing on the percentage of people who are dying or hospitalized uh, because they're unvaccinated. Are, are these vaccines, in a way, a victim of of their own success? You know, last year this time we were talking about, boy, if we could get sixty five percent efficacy, we'd be thrilled. And and then they come out ninety five percent. We're talking about, and then you know now we're hearing of some some you know, breakthrough cases, and we can talk about that word in a bit, but is, is there kind of a, you know, people are, oh my God, these vaccinated people are, are, are testing positive and showing minor symptoms. 
Yeah, I, I don't. Well, first of all, that's what he would have said. I mean, the term breakthrough, the correct use of the term breakthrough for me in this is that despite being fully vaccinated, nonetheless, you're hospitalized, you're killed by this virus. That's a breakthrough case. I mean, these are so-called mucosal infections like rotavirus, influenza virus. These kinds of vaccines are very good at preventing moderate to severe to critical disease, not generally as good at, pre- at preventing asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection, because that's fine. I mean, you're really just trying to keep people out of the hospital, out of the morgue. This vaccine does that. So I don't think it's that people are now surprised that there can be asymptomatic or mild infection. I would have thought that they would have been compelled by the fact that more than 620,000 people have died from this virus and that you can avoid dying from getting a vaccine. That should have been compelling enough. I mean, usually when I use the phrase, Vaccines are a victim of their own successes because people don't see the diseases anymore. Like people can say, I don't think I need a measles vaccine anymore because they they don't remember that before the measles vaccine came out in the early 1960s, that 500 children would die every year, that 50,000 people would be hospitalized every year. They don't remember that. But this they should remember because it's still happening every day in this country. Tens of thousands of people are getting uh, infected and, and, and hundreds are dying every day. I mean, you know, in, in the old days, and this is going to sound terrible to say, but it, there, there were years ago, people who, who were worried that, that oh, most of us don't remember what it can be like to suffer these diseases, like, you know, the spontaneous abortions and, and birth defects caused by rubella or the, you know, the deaths from measles or the, you know, the diphtheria was a common uh, killer of teenagers, that polio was a common crippler. These people would say, you know what we need is a good pandemic. Well, we've gotten a good pandemic and still people are, are willing to reject vaccines. So, uh, I, I have no explanation for this anymore other than people can deny what's right in front of them. Breakthrough. It, it's interesting. I, I listened to a, a podcast called This Week in Virology, and it was the first time that I heard somebody say that this is not breakthrough, that we shouldn't be calling these breakthrough cases. And, and you know, I'm not uh, I'm not a scientist. So, you know, I especially in my business and broadcast, you know, we tend to use words that fit neatly into a minute. Is it wrong to call these breakthrough or is that misleading or or incorrect? Yeah, no, I think it's misleading. I mean, it makes people think that despite the fact that they've gotten uh, vaccinated, that this virus has broken through and now is causing the disease you were trying to prevent. It's not. It's causing disease you were trying to prevent if you're hospitalized or in the ICU or killed. That's not happening. These are these are mild infections. Actually, I give credit to Lindsey Graham um, on this. When he got um, he got vaccinated, and despite his vaccination, he has what is a mild infection, which he describes as sort of a like a sinusitis. And he said correctly um, that you know. Thank goodness I got this vaccine, because had I not gotten it, I would have had a much more severe infection. So I give him credit for that, something I, I'm not usually giving credit to Lindsey Graham all the time. But, you know, this time I, I give him credit. I hate to ask this question after that explanation. But is there one vaccine that, that seems to be less effective against preventing symptomatic infection compared to others? And is that even a relevant question? Well, I think I think they're all doing the job you want them to do. Uh, you know, as long as as look at the Delta variant, that's a perfect example. So we went from 25 percent of the the strains that were isolated in this country were Delta variant to 50 percent to 80 percent now to 87 percent. If if the vaccines weren't doing what they were supposed to do, then what you would have seen is a concomitant increase in the number of people who were hospitalized or killed by this virus who nonetheless were vaccinated, and that didn't happen. So this, these vaccines are still excellent at protecting against this much more contagious variant. Once again, making the argument that people have an easy choice here to be vaccinated. Are we, by putting so much attention on the Delta variant, in in some ways possibly ignoring human behavior? I mean, we had, 
you know, in, 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 in late June, everyone can take their masks off if they're vaccinated. Everyone took their masks off. Hard to say if they were, were not vaccinated. Is, is there maybe an ignorance of human behavior or, or discounting human behavior in, in these case counts that maybe could be misleading or dangerous? No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, if you look at the number of cases of um, hospitalizations and deaths over the last, say, week, where you'll see 80,000 cases, 90,000 cases, 100,000 cases, and between 200 and, say, mid-400 deaths, that's not all that dissimilar to last summer. I mean, last summer we had a fully susceptible population. Last summer we had no vaccine. So why are we having roughly the same numbers? I, th- I think one reason is the Delta variant. It is more contagious and much more contagious than the the virus that was circulating last year, which was primarily the so-called D614G variant. So that's number one. But the, the second reason, is I think it's the much bigger reason, is that our behavior is so much different this summer than last summer. I mean, last summer, we were afraid to have weddings or birthday parties. We were afraid to go to sporting events. In fact, there was a limitation as to how many people could go to sporting events. Remember, there was this one bikers conference in Sturgis, South Dakota, that was all the news because here these bikers had gotten together. They didn't wear masks. That was considered a likely super spreader event. Now, you know, that's happening all the time. So I think that's it. And also, there's still enough of the population that's susceptible to this virus that allows it, the virus uh, to, to to seek out those who are susceptible. And we just have to get our vaccine rates up. An epidemiologist is one of 15 fully vaccinated people who went to a house party. No masks, of course, there. 11 of them got COVID, and yes, including that epidemiologist. So what can we learn from this? Dr. Alan Massey is that guy, also professor of surgery at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. What do you think your story tells us? Well, for me, it was a big wake-up call. I thought when we went to that party that we were safe. Uh, All of us were vaccinated and No one knew of any infections. I was aware that there was a slight risk that breakthrough infections can happen. But even if you even when I found out two days later that one person who was there had tested positive, I thought, oh, maybe one or two more people will be sick. And to me, the fact that it was 11 out of the 15 of us really told me that COVID, the way that it's working right now, at least the way that it was working at this party, is a lot more infectious than it has been. So what I took away is that it's a changing disease or something about the way it's transmitting is changing. And vaccination isn't, uh, doesn't provide quite as much protection as we thought. Okay, but, but that being said, because there are people who are going to hear this and think, ah, well, you see, the vaccines are just not working. I'm, I'm, I'm reading right now from my phone, uh, CNN did an analysis from the Center of Disease Control and came up with 99.99% of people who are fully vaccinated have not had a breakthrough case resulting, and that's the important part, I think, resulting in hospitalization or death. By that measure, all 11 of you were actually a success story for the vaccine, weren't you? So I would agree with that. I think the vaccine potentially could provide two benefits. One of them is reducing risk of infection, and the other is if you do get sick, then you're not going to be as sick. And in that regard, there's no way to know for sure, but I do think the vaccine protected us. Um, A lot of us were older. Some of us had chronic conditions. And, uh, you know, we all went through it. Some of us were better in a couple of days. Some of us took a week or more, but no one has had a really serious illness. And if you had told me a month ago, uh, you tell me the future, I'm going to get COVID. I would say, well, I really want them to be vaccinated so that I reduce my risk 
of getting hospitalized or worse. You mentioned some of this, but for some people, a few days, for some a little longer. What was it like for you? Because all termed is mild, right? But how long? What kind of symptoms? Sure. So, well, I found out a mild case can still be pretty unpleasant. I had uh, fever and chills for two or three days, and then uh, essentially a case of the flu for about a week or so. So I was, uh, you know, under the weather, I was never worried about my oxygen levels or anything like that. I did get an oximeter to monitor things just in case. I felt pretty bad. Um, and then after a while, I was better. And now I'm up and kicking again. I have had some residual tiredness. You mentioned that some among you uh, fit into the uh, older category. Some had uh, uh, various uh, what comorbidities that might make a, a case of COVID worse, especially if they were not vaccinated. Did they, all those people, come through this okay too? Yes. Uh, fortunately, we've all recovered. Um, I think there's maybe one of us is still having a little bit of a sore throat, but nothing really serious at this point. Does it change your view at all about how you see other people operating? Because, you know, let's take the opposite ends of the spectrum. And there is the, okay, it's such a small chance of this happening. I'm going to go live. I'm going to go to the house party with my vaccinated friends like you did. Or there's the, you know what, I could be a breakthrough case. I haven't even eaten inside a restaurant yet. It's definitely changed my behavior. And, uh, you know, I came through it fine. Um, I feel better about my friends and family knowing that most of us are vaccinated. But at the same time, uh, I think that COVID is, we've known all the time, it's a changing disease. I don't know if we had Delta or some other variant, but whatever we had seems to be not your run-of-the-mill COVID from six months ago. So um, I, I think after we got sick, the CDC did change the guidelines but when we got sick, the county that we were in would have been considered low risk by the CDC. So I think for the time being, I'm very glad that my friends and family are vaccinated so that if they don't, if they get sick, they're not going to the hospital. But I think the best way to avoid disease and to avoid serious risk if you're going to be around kids or other people who can't be vaccinated is to continue to mask up, um, you know, stay distance from people when you can't mask or be outside. Do you have a theory about why three out of the 14 got apparently nothing? Uh, well, it's hard to say. One of those who tested negative was symptomatic, and I wonder if she got a bad test. But uh, ultimately, it would be a disease that would infect 100% of any population is astonishing. I mean, I've, you know, my epi friends have been blown away that it was 11 out of the 14. That's a That's a pretty powerful, pretty serious outbreak. So... Um, I'm happy for the three people that don't seem to have gotten it, but uh, 11 out of uh, 15 is quite enough. I'm not sure everybody would Google what to do or look at the CDC website or know offhand. So what did you do when your friend said that they got it and then you got tested? Was there like a do I leave work moment? How am I feeling? Do I need to isolate? I'm vaccinated. What do you do with that kind of back and forth in the middle of the afternoon? Sure. Well, the first thing I'll say is that I'm very glad that our friend who got sick let us all know right away. I heard from her 36 hours after I'd been exposed. And I think that if she hadn't been very active in letting everyone know immediately, then it there would have been a lot more people sick as well. I was at work when I found out. Uh, I immediately closed my office door. In 10 minutes, I was out of the office and I headed home. Uh, I work for a medical school. So fortunately, my employer takes COVID very seriously. So it's fine for me to leave in the middle of the day like that. 
I immediately moved to the basement of my house. So I isolated from my wife and from my kids, even though they're vaccinated also. And I thought, just in case I'm sick, I don't want to run the risk of getting anybody else sick. All of my friends isolated as well. And astonishingly, we're only aware of one other person who got sick from us. One person who was there got his wife sick that was not there. And other than that, there were no secondary infections. So I'm really thankful to my friend that she tested right away, that she let us all know right away. And I think that it's fortunate that the rest of us were able to isolate and not spread it any further. Dr. Alan Massey, professor of epidemiology, surgery at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Was at that party one of the 11 who uh, got COVID? Doctor, thanks for talking to us. Glad you're doing better. Coming up, paying for a fake when you can get the real thing for free. People who refuse to get vaccinated despite mandates at work or on their college campus might be looking at ways to cheat the system. Now, that demand is being met by people in the shadows who are creating fake vaccination cards. Vaccines free, bogus cards going to cost you money. Rosalind Romero, investigative intern for the Associated Press, student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. So, Rosalind, tell us what you found. Hello. Uh, so, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so, in you know, throughout my reporting, uh, like you said, I am a college student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Uh, we, uh, I, I saw that we are mandating COVID nineteen vaccines um, for all students, and so I, you know, it it led to the question of, well, if you know, all we can do, all the college students can do, is submit a picture front and back of your COVID nineteen vaccine card. Um, well, how, how verifiable or how trustworthy is this system and are universities equipped to handle this situation? So um, I found that uh, at least 675 colleges and universities throughout the United States um, are now requiring proof of COVID-19 vaccinations. But um, this has sprung up a cottage industry of uh, fraudulent COVID-19 vaccination cards um, you know, you can find them easily on social media, on the dark web, um, on apps like Telegram. Uh, and people are buying these vaccine cards for upwards of $200. And uh, were you able to find students uh, that actually bought these and are using them or tried to use them? Yes. Well, so these students, they were really hesitant about being identified um, because there's just so much reluctance about uh, this vaccine and the politicization of it. Um, but the students that I did uh, speak with, they said that uh, usually it was because uh, they just didn't want to follow the COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Um, some, for some students, it was a religious exemption issue. Um, and so, you know, they wanted to bypass these vaccine requirements by obtaining these cards, um, which are surprisingly um, easy to get. Yeah, not too heavy of a lift, right, from what you described. You, you can find them if you want to go and find them. Right, exactly. So, uh, for example, if you go on Instagram or Twitter or even Reddit, uh, you're going to see several accounts with a quick search of uh, people selling these fake COVID-19 vaccine cards. So, uh, for example, when I went on the app Telegram, uh, there were several channels or several forums of people promoting 
these, these vaccine cards. And some of them are laminated, some of them are blank, some of them are already filled out. Um, and, you know, people are buying these for anywhere between $20 to even $400. Um, so there's a demand out there. What are the schools doing to try to prevent this from happening? Or n- not buying it, but to ensure that when a student says that he or she has been vaccinated, they, in fact, have been vaccinated. Right. So there are some systems in place already at uh, several universities. So I spoke with Vanderbilt University and they uh, place a hold on students uh, class registration until they have their uh, vaccine record verified or unless they have an approved medical accommodation or religious exemption. I also spoke with the University of Michigan and they said that they already have a verification system in place. Um, But when I asked about this verification system, it is not very clear as to what the specific process is. So we don't know what exactly this verification process is for many of these universities, um, or even if they have any access to the CDC databases. Uh, to check lot numbers or uh, other information. So um, there, these colleges actually um, also mentioned to me how, um, if anything, there's, uh, they seem to be downplaying the measurable impact. So uh, the chief health officer at the University of Southern California actually told me, you know, for the vast majority of students that she's uh, spoken with, uh, they actually want to get vaccinated. They want to return to in-person classes. They want that uh, return to normalcy. And so if she said that if there are students who are submitting these cards, that that number of students would not have any uh, measurable impact on the good community immunity. Rosalind Romero, investigative reporting intern for the Associated Press, student at uh, Cal Poly. Rosalind, thanks. Speaking of the vaccines, as I mentioned earlier, but in case you missed it, CNN analyzed CDC data and found out of the 164 million people in the U.S. fully vaccinated against COVID, more than 99.99% have not had a breakthrough case resulting in hospitalization or death. Fewer than 0.001% of those individuals, that's about 1,507 people, died and 7,101 people went into the hospital. Of the roughly 1,500 people who died, one in five passed away from something other than COVID, even though they had a breakthrough case of the virus. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.